Let's pray as we prepare to hear God's word. Lord, speak now for your servants are listening. May we, as we hear your word, know your deep love for us and turn from our failed attempts to escape you and find your warm embrace. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Our first reading this morning comes from Genesis 3. This will be uh, our last time in Genesis 3. We're headed towards the end of Lent. Next week uh, is uh, Palm Sunday and Holy Week. Uh, So this is our uh, last little bit to focus in on what it looks like for uh, sin to affect deeply our lives. Uh, And this morning we're going to read Genesis 3, verses 8 through 11. These should be familiar to you by now. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. So Adam and Eve have been told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and yet they have done it anyway, Um, and they've covered themselves with fig leaves, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? The man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? of which I commanded you not to eat. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning comes from Psalm 51. uh, And it follows, uh, this is the psalm that King David wrote immediately after the prophet Nathan came to confront him about his affair with Bathsheba. You see, David took someone who wasn't his wife and made made her his own wife, And then her husband, who was in the military, had him sent out into the most dangerous portion of battle that he might be killed. Nathan comes to him after he's done this and confronts him about the sin that he has committed. And this is David's confession for what he's done. Hear this word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
Do, God, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our last reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, Almighty Father, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I tell y'all stories regularly about when I was a counselor at camp, but one of my favorites is of a boy, he was about eight, who decided he was going to run away. He told his counselor that he was running away, and he started going down the road right out towards camp, and Ben, his counselor, just decided to walk with him and see what would happen. So along the way, he asked him questions, you know, where are you going to go? What are you going to eat? Where will you sleep? Do you know the way back home? It turned out that the boy didn't have very much of a plan. He just wanted to get away. For most of us, it'd be hard to figure out why he wanted to get away. He had three meals that were prepared for him each day. The dishes were done by other folks. He had friends in his cabin, counselors to care for him and protect him, and all the things a boy could want. Horses to ride, rocks to climb, mountain bikes to ride, fly fishing to do, a blob to jump on. He'd given no thoughts to who might clean his clothes or do the grocery shopping or the dishes, meal planning, or what transportation might look like once his shoes wore out, shelter. He didn't think that all those things had been taken care of. He was just going to run away. He was tired of being there. When the Lord comes to Adam and Eve and they're hiding, it's a ridiculous practice, really. As ridiculous as Chris running around the sanctuary while the rest of us watched where he hid to know where he was going. You've searched me and you know me, the psalmist says. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, when I go out and when I come in. And yet Adam and Eve try to hide with a few trees and fig leaves. You know my thoughts from afar, the psalmist says. In other words, you don't even need to see where I go because you could tell by reading my mind where I am and where I'm going in the first place. If I climb to heaven, you're there. If I descend to Sheol, you're there too. 
Even darkness isn't dark to you. We could turn out the lights and still you could find me. Beyond that, you formed me in my inward parts. You know my impulses so well that even if you couldn't read my mind and see me at every moment, you would still know where I'd go because you know how I'm wired. This psalm that we started with this morning in our call to worship tells us of the relentless pursuit that God has for us at all times, in every place, at every moment. And it's hard to tell what the tone of the psalm is. It could be one of exasperation, like that person that just never leaves you alone. I cannot get away from you, God. Or maybe it's praise. You will not let me leave you behind, however hard I work to run away. There's no way to tell from the tone of the psalm which it is. It really depends on the person speaking. Do you want God there or do you not? That's the question for us today. You see, one of the common definitions of sin is that it's anything that separates us from God. And this is true, but it helps us dodge a really fundamental reality about sin. That most of the time it's a willful choice for us to separate ourselves from God. It's not just that we'd really like to be near God, that we'd prefer to be buddies with God, but we just keep tripping over our own feet on the way there. That we just make small mistakes that anybody could do, just something careless. Sin isn't primarily us just being clumsy. Much of the time, it's not that we'd have made a different decision if we just knew a little bit more. Now, often our sin is active rebellion. Sure, you've given us everything we need here in the garden, but that's not enough for Adam and Eve. It wouldn't be enough for us either, because we want to be like God, and he's trying to keep us from it. He said that tree would kill us, but it looks like it'd be pretty good food, and the serpent says it might do great things for our understanding. So we prove ourselves like that little kid at camp to be ungrateful and too big for our britches and have delusions of grandeur with no real sense of the provision and protection, the care that God showers over us at every moment. Sin is fundamentally a disbelief of God's word and a belief of a different word. And it's often rooted in a hope that we ourselves can take control of our own story that we could write a better story for ourselves than God could, that maybe we could even be like God. We ourselves can improve our station, our status, our nature. Sin is a rejection of what God offers to us in hopes that we might find something better, that we might prove ourselves to be valuable or powerful in a way that isn't dependent on God or anyone else certainly not on God's goodness and grace. Sin is our wandering away from the place where God provides us everything that we need because God there is our all in all and choosing something else without any real sense of what it might cost. As David writes Psalm 51, I mentioned that he's just made the biggest mistakes of his life. He's ruined another man's life, not only by taking his wife, but by having him killed. 
And yet David's confession is one directly to the Lord. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's not that David hasn't wronged Uriah the Hittite. It's that David's first concern is not Uriah or Uriah's family or Bathsheba. It's that he he recognizes that he has sinned against the Lord, the one who has anointed him king, the one who will say that he is a man after God's own heart. David has rejected Against you and you alone have I sinned. It's so grievous that it's the only thing David can think about. And he pleads with the Lord. Don't take your spirit from me. Wash me. Cleanse me. Make me whiter than snow. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And I will tell others of your mercy. David recognizes that his sin though it's caused deep harm to other people, is not finally about them. It is certainly in part about them, and God cares greatly about what he did. But David is most concerned about the ways that he has severed his relationship from the Lord that has provided everything from him from the moment of his birth. For the last three weeks, we've talked about the fragmentation and alienation that comes with sin. We've talked about how creation that was designed to sustain our lives and to let us be fruitful and multiply and rule over the earth now beats us back into submission. That eventually we will return to the dust from which we are made. We've talked about how sin tears us apart internally to the point that we can't even act anymore on our good intentions. In fact, most of the time we do the opposite. We don't have self-control like we'd like, even when it's good for us to have it. We hurt those that we love the most, even when we don't want to. And last week, we talked about how our sin alienates us from one another. As we blame others for our own shortcomings, as we lie about what we've done and our attempt to hide from them in the same way that we're hiding from God, as we project our anger and fears onto other people, as we make others objects to do our biddings or provide us with pleasure, that they might bear a double portion of the curse so that we don't have to bear any of it. We break these relationships with each other and with ourselves and even with creation. But here's the thing. You don't have to be a Christian to know that death is a problem, that grief hurts. And everybody wants healthy, peaceful relationships with their family and friends. Desiring to fix these effects of sin is just a part of the natural longing that comes with living in a broken world, that comes with living under the curse. Health, wealth, and freedom from conflict, even the pagans want that. God's salvation certainly necessarily includes restoring all of these things. But that's not the whole story. It's not even the most important. As we join in David's confession and say against you and you alone have I sinned, we're stating something else. We're stating that we desperately want to be reconciled to God. And when we do that, we're already acting on account of God's grace. You see, Adam and Eve's rebellion and shame drove them as very far away from God as they could get in the garden. 
They didn't want to be in God's presence. They didn't want to be seen by a God who sees all things. They did not want to be known by the one who knows all things. They did not want to be with the one who is in every place at every time. They did not want him, but God's presence with them was relentless. And it is the same with us. They did not want him, and yet he came. Not only did he come, he called out to them, and he made them better clothes than the fig leaves that they had strung together to cover themselves. All of the rest of what we've been talking about for the last few weeks, our brokenness down with creation and inward with ourselves and across with one another's, all of this is an effect of the ways we've been alienated from God. All of the others are symptoms of the disease, but this, this is the disease. That not only does sin separate us from God, we don't really want anything to do with Him aside from His grace. That much power, that much beauty and holiness, that much purifying love is just a little bit too much for our hearts to handle. We fear His judgment. We fear His wrath. We fear his look of disappointment. So rather than be with the one who made us and loves us relentlessly, we'd rather God avert his eyes and just let us hide and be to ourselves. But God's love is too relentless for that. Skeptics want to know if God exists. Sinners want to know, is it possible that there could be a God that is for me? that is enough for me, whose love for me might forgive me and heal me and make me whole? Is God really mighty enough to save even me and each of us from all of the effects of our sin, even from our desire to flee him at every moment? You see, it's not enough just for God to exist. It's not enough for God to have created the world and set the earth on its axis like a basketball player spinning it on his finger or her finger. I need a God who is full of grace and truth, whose steadfast love endures forever, who comes to me when I'm most vulnerable, most afraid, most broken because of the things that I have done and that others have done that have harmed me and says... Where are you? And when I say I didn't want to come out because I was naked, he names the brokenness for me directly. You rebelled against my word. You ate from the tree. You see, part of the condition of sin, maybe the whole of the condition of sin, is that we don't want God. Our sin is a statement that we don't want God and think that we don't need him, that we can run away and be just fine on our own but he comes anyway. And God doesn't just come metaphorically. God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. The Father sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. He took on flesh and made his dwelling place, the earth, and brought light into the darkness, into the shame and pain of our lives. He didn't just come and share space with us, though. He entered in to its brokenness. He knew death in his own body. He knew the abandonment of his friends and the oppression of an unjust system. He even knew temptation, though this is the one place where we aren't like him, because he did not sin. 
He was not torn apart inwardly by sin. He was like us in every way, but without sin. Jesus came to shine light right through every bit of darkness and broken pieces in our lives because not even the night is dark to him. And that brings us to this passage from Romans, where Paul says that Christ has come to die for the ungodly. Most wouldn't even die for someone who's good, but maybe, possibly, someone might do that. But Christ has come to die for us. And he has reconciled us to God through his death. That is, he saved us from the curse because we are reunited with the one who can provide us with everything that we need. He's reconciled us with his death, but he's done more than that. He has saved us with his life. It's not just that he sets us right in the present, but that he sets us on a trajectory that we were meant for all along, that we get to abide an abundant life with God. It's when we gather at the communion table that Jesus comes to us again. Just as God has come in Jesus, he comes to us each time as we gather at the table. God says, you can feast all you want. Eat until you're fat and happy, but this is the feast that matters. This is the taste of the supper of the Lamb and life in the world to come. As we gather here at the table, the invitation is to stop running. God's grace has met you and spoken and said, stop. Where are you and why are you hiding? I have come to abide with you. And as in Christ we are reconciled to God, we begin to find healing and wholeness in all aspects of our lives. This is the cup of salvation. This is the bread of heaven. Will you pray with me? Lord, invite us now to your table and meet us there. As we prepare to join together in this holy sacrament, we ask that we would lay aside everything that leads us to hide, that we would join together with David as he prays against you and you alone have I sinned. Blot out my transgressions, cleanse me from every iniquity, and wash me as white as snow. Because by your grace we long to be with you, and by your grace we are reconciled to you, and by your grace we can live with you forevermore. Do this work in us, for we desperately need it. We desperately long for you. So come as the bread of life for us. Amen. Um, later in Romans 8, um, a scripture that I have been thinking on the last couple of weeks, it says that in Christ, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the spirit of death. And we've all read that. I've read it lots of times, but um, I was think about it, thinking about it in the context of um, deep regret and things that we have done or things that have been done to us that um, significantly change the course of our lives and even who we are, and that the law of the spirit of death says this is what you get. 
the wages of sin is death. That's pretty straightforward. Like, this is what you did, this is what you get, and that's the end. Whereas the law of the spirit of life has set us free from that, from that truth, that what we get is what we deserve, or what we deserve is what we get. Um, and that, that not only has he, has he reconciled us to him with his death, but that he saves us day in and day out and continuously through his life and with his life. Um, and that he's here and he's committed to our good. And um, rather than hiding, we can just go and be vulnerable because um, he already knows. And he's going to minister to, um, to the damage that sin has done.
Remain seated as you turn in your hymnals to number 340. We'll sing verses 1 and 4 of Come Ye Sinners Poor and Needy. Make you linger, nor 